You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. And with your Bibles open to Psalm 145, just bow before the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to magnify your name and to bless your holy name. We want the praise of this psalmist to be ours, and we want and desire you to be glorified here today in all that you do, all that you provide, and in all that we think and all that we sing. We pray, O God, that you would open our eyes to your word and help us to see in this psalm those things which make you worthy of our obedience and our love and our worship to you. We thank you that we have such an awesome God, and we pray that you would help us to get a glimpse of your grandeur and glory and majesty today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today is our Consecration Sunday, and this is the third one that we've had in the last, the course of the last ten years, where we uh, offer to the Lord our first ourselves and then our gifts to Him for the new facility. And you might think that it would be right for me to pick a text that had to do maybe with offering or consecrating ourselves, or maybe a text on the subject of giving. But instead, I wanted to back up uh, to something that kind of um, comes before either offering ourselves or giving of ourselves, and that is to, to pondering the greatness of our God and to extolling God for His greatness. Because I truly believe that the act of personal consecration, me bringing myself to the Lord and giving myself to Him and then giving of myself to Him, there's something that happens before that, and it is that I have to know who this God is that I give myself to. And it doesn't do me any good to simply offer my gifts or offer myself to somebody or something that I don't intimately know. And so I think the best thing for uh, people to do to consecrate themselves is to ponder the greatness of the God to whom we render worship and obedience. And so for that reason, we're starting with Psalm 145 today. And uh, this is a great psalm. It is a psalm that extols God for His many attributes and His greatness. It's a psalm of praise. I think it's one of the most magnificent psalms in, in all of the book of Psalms. As David, and it is David's psalm, as David describes the greatness of God, who God is and what God has done and all of the works of God and all of the character of God come into clear focus in Psalm 145. So that's why I selected the psalm for this morning. And the psalm falls very naturally into really five divisions. David praises God for five things. In verses 1 through 7, David praises God for his greatness. In verses 8 through 10, for God's goodness. In verse 11 through 13, for God's kingdom. In verses 14 through 16, God's providence, or we might say his providential provision for all of his creatures. And then in verses 17 through 21, God's salvation. So God's greatness, his goodness, his kingdom, his providence, and his salvation. So we're going to look at all 21 verses today. And I know that compared to the last couple of weeks, to take 21 verses in one Sunday, especially of such a magnificent psalm, is going to feel like we're flying past an art gallery at the speed of light, and I'm asking you to take all of it in. So I would suggest this. Jot down the outline that I'm offering to you and spend the next five days or five weeks with a day or a week on each of those sections, just contemplating it, and use what we're going to cover today as basically an introduction to the psalm. If we had the luxury of 
of five more weeks in this psalm, I would divide this into five sermons. Because as I went through this, I was thinking to myself, wow, that's a whole sermon. There's a whole sermon, and I came up with five of them. So five points, and just use this as an introduction. So let's begin, verses 1 through 7. David praises God for his, his greatness, his majesty. Look at the beginning of the psalm. The psalm has an introduction, and it's a short one. It says, a psalm of praise and of David. And I've mentioned this before, oftentimes when reading the psalms for scripture reading, that little introduction is part of inspired scripture. It's part of the psalm, the introduction. And I'm not talking about the heading that the publisher of your Bible might have put there. My heading, for instance, says, the Lord extolled for his goodness. I don't know what your heading is. I'm not talking about the heading being inspired, but that little description that usually occurs, and it's usually, in most Bibles, it's italics, and it's much smaller print. It's an introduction that sometimes mentions the instrument that the psalm was written to accompany, or it sometimes mentions the circumstances surrounding the writing of the psalm or the circumstances in which the author of the psalm found himself. Sometimes it mentions who the psalm was written to or for, like a music leader or an instrumentalist. This is a short one. It's just a psalm of praise, and it's of David. It's David's praise. And what I want to do in Psalm 145 is to make David's praise our own praise so that we can begin to personalize, at least, the things that we find David praising God for here in this psalm. So I'm going to read verses 1 to 7, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to pay attention to all of the words that are used for praise, the words that describe the act or the action of praising. Verse 1, I will extol you, my God, O King. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. There's a whole bunch of words that are used there. Some of them are synonyms. You see the word bless, extol, praise, praised, declare, meditate, speak, tell, utter, and shout. All words to express this action of praising God. Now some of them are synonyms, as I said, and I don't want to go through all nine of those, but I would just point out two of them for you this morning. The first is that word bless that occurs in verses 1 and 2. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. Now often when you and I think of the act of blessing, what do we think of? We think of something that God does for us, don't we? I have been blessed, or God has blessed me, God has given something to me, or God has provided something for me. When we speak of blessing, it's awkward for us to think of us blessing God, isn't it? We often think of God blessing us. We think in terms of something that God has provided for us or done for us, and that is an act of blessing. The word bless comes from the word in Hebrew to kneel, or comes from the word for knee, and it meant literally to kneel down and to subject oneself to somebody else. And so it carries the idea of kneeling before somebody else and offering back to them thanksgiving or submission or humility for what that person has provided. That's the idea behind blessing when it's used of us blessing God. Now, is there anything that we can give to God? Does God need anything from us? uh, Acts 17, God does not have no need of anything that we could give to Him. He is without need. He is the unsustained sustainer. He is the giver of everything. So there's nothing that I can give to God that He has not first given to me. I have nothing, not the clothes on my back. I have nothing that I have not first received from God's hand. So there really is truly nothing that God needs that He has to get from me. And so in giving it to Him, I am blessing Him. 
So really what it means when we bless God is that we kneel down before God, we bow and humble ourselves to acknowledge the greatness of the one who has given something to us. That's what the act of kneeling does. It's an affectionate term, by the way. I will bless, I will speak well of God in thanksgiving for what He has done for me. That's the idea of blessing. We bless God when we speak well of His name. When we say God is glorious, God is majestic, He sits in splendor, He is enthroned on high, His greatness is unsearchable. Really, this whole psalm and all of the attributes that David recounts is is nothing more than a list of the things that make God great. And that is what David is doing in blessing God, is listing and saying the things that make God great. God is to be praised because He is great. And when we acknowledge His greatness and we kneel before that and we confess that, that blesses God. Not in the sense that it provides something to Him, but it speaks well of Him and it acknowledges our thankfulness to Him. The second word I want you to notice is the word meditate. It's in verse 5. On the glorious splendor of Your majesty and on Your wonderful works, I will meditate. How often do you think of praise in terms of meditation? Have you ever thought of meditation as an act of praise? As an act of blessing or extolling God? It is, and you know how it is? You know what meditation is? Meditation is not emptying your mind in an Eastern, Far Eastern yoga type practice where you, you divest your mind of all thoughts and try and connect or commune with some spiritual entity for the sake of being blessed or communing with God on high. That's not meditation. Meditation, biblical meditation, is actually the opposite. It is filling the mind with truth. That's biblical meditation. It's not emptying the mind. It's filling the mind. It's not emptying the mind of all thought and truth. It is filling the mind with biblical truth. So meditation takes biblical truth and puts it into my mind and then chews on it. Chews on that truth. That's what meditation is. It's chewing on truth in the brain, in the head, in the mind. And it's basking in that truth. And it is knowing that truth and turning that truth around in my mind to like a precious jewel and admiring its many facets and its many sides and its many glories and its many colors. It's thinking through the implications of that truth. It's humbling myself before that truth. It's hammering that truth out in my mind and grasping it and getting handles on it. That's what biblical meditation is. Did you know that that is an act of worship when you meditate on God's truth? How is that an act of worship? Because what you are doing in your mind is you are preparing your heart to worship God. What must take place before you can verbally express to God worship? Before you can bless God, you must first meditate upon and think upon and bask in truth. That's what worship is. Worship is recounting back to God all of the things about Him that are true. It is idolatry to say things to God or about God that are not true. So before you can worship God in truth, you have to know truth. You have to have your mind filled with truth. You have to bask in that truth, rejoice in that truth, soak in that truth, so that when you speak back to God, you are speaking words of truth. To speak back to God words that are not true is blasphemy. We don't want to blaspheme God. We want to extol and worship and praise God. And the only way of doing that is to speak to God words of truth. So before we can speak words of truth, we have to know words of truth. And the act of meditating and basking on that truth, when we have God's Word in our heart and in our mind and we think about it and we hammer it out and we observe it and we love it and we meditate and think upon it, that is an act of worship because our mind is rejoicing in the God who is the God of truth. I will bless you, O Lord, and I will meditate upon your truth. Now I want you to look at verses 1 to 7 and I want you to notice all the descriptions of God's greatness. He is called a king in verse 1. He says, David says in verse 3, Great is the Lord 
and highly to be praised. Look at verse 3. His greatness is unsearchable. By the way, that's why you can in verses 1 and 2 praise God forever and ever, because His greatness is unsearchable. So in heaven, and heaven goes on forever, is it ever possible for us to run out of great things to say about God? It'll never be possible. It's possible for you and I to run out of great things to say about God No, because now because we don't know Him fully. And the limits of our human language here cannot express the unsearchable greatness of our God. But in heaven we will never run out of great things to say about God. And heaven will be one revelation after another of His goodness and His kindness and His nature. And we're going to have one moment after another when we say, well, I've just discovered this about God or I realize this about God or I see this about God. And we express to Him forever and ever and ever and our praise will go on in all of the activities in the new earth and that paradise that we get to inhabit forever with God, it will be one moment of praise and joy and adoration after another in all of our activities and all of our works of service for all of eternity. Because His greatness is unsearchable. And since His greatness is unsearchable, you will never be able for all of eternity to search it out and to adequately and accurately express Him. And no amount of praise forever, even eternity's worth of praise, will never accomplish or fill up His worthiness to receive all of that praise because His greatness is unsearchable. Now look in verse 5 how he sort of heaps one description upon another. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and your wonderful works I will meditate. It's almost like he's just running out of words in verse 5. All of these great things about God. Your your majesty, the wonder, your glorious, your splendor. David's filling up this description of God. On these things I will meditate. And verse 6. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and I will tell of your greatness. I think that King James says fearsome acts. The word can be used to describe something which inspires awe. It can also be used something that inspires terror or fear in somebody. And it might be that David has in mind here God's act, awesome acts of judgment, like Sodom and Gomorrah type judgment, or like the global flood type judgment, those type of acts. Those type of acts, when we think upon the acts of God in judging sin, or these mighty demonstrations of God's power, they fear us with, they fill us with fear and with awe, do they not? And we can speak of those things, and think upon those things, And when we do, they remind us in verse 7 of His goodness, His abundant goodness, and we shout joyfully of His righteousness. How is it that the judgments of God, Sodom and Gomorrah type judgments, and Noah's flood type judgments, how is it that those judgments demonstrate the abundant goodness of God? You ever think that the global flood was a good thing? You know, it was a good thing. It was a good thing that God did that because the whole earth was filled with wickedness. Now, Noah's generation was no more worthy of that type of judgment than our generation is. Our generation is just as filled with wickedness. But when we look upon the magnificent judgments of God which inspire fear in us, they fill us with awe for who He is. And we see even in those acts of judging sin, God's goodness. God is good to judge sin. And when He judges sin and He removes sinners from the face of the earth, when God destroys the wicked, it is an act of goodness to everyone else. If God kills the murderer in your neighborhood, it is an act of kindness to you, is it not? And when God judges a sinner and removes a sinner, it's an act of kindness to that sinner. That God keeps him from sinning any more than he has sinned and heaping up more judgment upon him. Those are acts of God's goodness. When we look at Sodom and Gomorrah and the worldwide flood and all that God does in his acts of righteous judgment across the face of the earth, which fill us with awe, those things remind us of the goodness of God. Not only the goodness of God in those judgments, but in the reality that He doesn't judge like that all the time, does He? And that reminds me of His goodness when we deserve judgment, but we don't get it. That reminds me of God's goodness and His greatness. That God is great and His goodness is abundant. Verse 7, And we will shout joyfully of your righteousness. It's a good thing for the righteous or for believers to love God's righteousness and to shout joyfully 
of God's righteousness. You ever think of shouting joyfully of God's righteousness? Do you know that the righteousness of God is your best friend? Do you know why the righteousness of God is your best friend? Because God is righteous, He will never deal with you in an unrighteous fashion. And since you have His righteousness imputed to you on the basis of what His Son does, He sees in you all of the righteousness of Christ, and He will always deal with you according to that righteousness. To the unbeliever, the idea of God's righteousness is a terror. But to the believer, the the concept of God's righteousness, we rest in that. We shout joyfully of it. I am thankful that God is righteous. Because God is righteous, He will never punish me for my sin. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He will always deal with me in a righteous fashion as His child. So we shout joyfully of God's righteousness. That's His greatness, verse 1-7. to Now look at God's goodness, verses 8-10. through The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abundant, and great in, in loving kindness. That description would remind every Jew of of uh, uh, Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, where when the Lord replaced the Ten Commandments, the two tablets of stone for Moses after he broke them, the Lord appeared to Moses and descended. And the Lord said, now this is what the Lord said about the Lord, about himself, to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, abounding in loving kindness and truth. That was God's description of himself. He is the Lord, He is the Lord, He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. This sounds just like Psalm 145, verse 8. He is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and great in loving kindness. Now, does the Lord get angry? He does get angry. He's slow to anger, but He does get angry. Does God execute judgment and pour out His wrath? He does throughout history. There are times when He has done that. Noah's flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, nation of Israel, Babylon, Syria... Cyrus, all of those are examples of God pouring out His judgment and instituting, uh, pouring out His wrath and instituting judgment on the earth. But even in the midst of all of that, God is slow to anger and He is abundant in loving kindness and compassion and truth. Look at verse 9. The Lord is good to all. His mercies are over all of His works. Everything God has ever done in this earth is characterized by His mercy. Characterized by His mercy. The way that God deals with us is merciful. As believers, God has been merciful to us in not giving us what we deserve for our sin. And everything that God has ever done on the face of this planet is an instance and an example of mercy. He, his mercy is over all of His works. He should have killed, or he, did, he, he could have killed, Adam and Eve, and that would have been the just and the right thing. But for our sake, He, has not, he didn't kill Adam and Eve. Instead, He dealt with them in mercy. Even Noah's flood was an act of mercy in that He spared Noah and his family. He did that for our sake, for their sake. Those are acts of mercy. Even God's most terrible acts of wrath on this planet have been been tempered with His mercy because He is merciful. And His mercy is over all of His works. And we see His mercy amongst in our own day and in our own planet all over the place. God is, God's actions and His, His activities are characterized by mercy. God is merciful and His mercy is over all His works. There are sometimes when sin ravages that and mars that, but we still see God's hand of mercy over all that He does, and over everything that He governs on the face of this planet. You can see the mercy. Sometimes His hand of mercy is clouded. Sometimes it's distorted. Sometimes it's covered up by the ravages of sin. But His mercy is there nonetheless. And His mercy is over all of His works. That's why verse 10 says, All your works shall give thanks to you, and your godly ones shall bless you. Of all the people who understand mercy, His godly ones are His righteous ones. His people understand it more than anybody else. Because we've experienced not only the mercy of God and His provision, 
and in His rule and His reign and in His goodness, but we have experienced the mercy of God in salvation and that God does not impute to us our sins and He does not take into account our sins, but He has instead taken them away in Christ. And of all people, we have been shown mercy more than others, have we not? Because we've come to His Son and He has granted us that mercy. So we know mercy. And as His godly ones, we rejoice in that mercy. He is good. God is good. Not only is God great, verses 1 to 7, He's good, verses 8 to 10. The third thing that David praises God for in verses 11 through 13 is his kingdom. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Now David was a king. Remember in verse 1 how he refers to God? He refers to him as, O God, my king, or my God, O king. So David was a king and David understood what majesty and power and dominion and might entailed. He understood splendor. He understood the splendor of an earthly majesty. But even though David was a king, he was not the king. And David knew that though he was a king, he was the subject of another kingdom. Because all authority and all institutions of government and all kingdoms and kingships come from God, who is the ultimate king. And so David in verse 1 bows himself as a king before the great king of the universe. And he acknowledges something that is a comfort to him in verses 11 through 13. And that is that God, of all people, of, of all beings, knows the splendor of a majestic kingdom. David understood splendor, but nothing compared to God. He was a mere glowworm compared to the sun of God's radiance and God's splendor and His majesty and His glory. David understood glory, but not like the glory of God. David just got a taste of what God's kingdom is like. He was just a ruler amongst God's eternal kingdom. Verse 13 sounds like through the book of Daniel, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. That's what Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, Nebuchadnezzar said, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What hast thou done? And now the psalmist, David, says the same thing. God's kingdom is an eternal kingdom. It's an everlasting kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom, and God rules. He rules over the inhabitants of the earth. He sets up kings. He takes down kings. He rules alone. He has no vice regents. He doesn't give his throne to somebody else. David knew that eventually he would die, and he would turn his throne and his dominion over to one of his sons. And who knows whether that son would be a wise man or a fool. And long after David passed from the scene, David knew that his glory and the glory of that kingdom that God had given to him, it would wax, and it would wane, and it would go up, and it would go down, but that's not so with God's kingdom. Charles Spurgeon says of this verse, of this passage, the Lord's kingdom is without beginning, without break, without bound, and without end. He never abdicates his throne, neither does he call in a second to share his empire. None can overthrow his power or break away from his rule. Neither this age nor the age to come nor ages of ages shall cause his sovereignty to fail, end quote. That's God's kingdom. That's what David confesses. Long after he is dead and gone, he knows that the kingdom of God endures from generation to generation. It's an everlasting kingdom. And God can be praised because He rules in the heaven and He rules among the inhabitants of the earth and He does as He pleases and He is sovereign and He never abdicates His sovereignty. He never gives it over to you and I. He never compromises His sovereignty. God is King and He rules and that is why He is worthy of our praise. So for His greatness, for His goodness, for His kingdom, now look at verses 14 through 16, His providential care or His providence. Verse 14, The Lord sustains all who fall down, who, who fall down and raises up all who are bowed down. There's quite a contrast between verse 13 and verse 14. Read verse 13 and 14 together. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. Do you notice the contrast of of ideas there? 
What type of a king who rules over everything forever, who has ruled from before the moment of creation and will rule for all of eternity until after all of this is wrapped up, what type of a king who rules over that majestic of a kingdom with that splendorous of a majesty and that type of a dominion bows down? The whole idea of that type of a king bowing down to take notice of even his the meanest and the meekest and the smallest and the most humble of his subjects is almost unthinkable. There's a contrast between verse 13. God is majestic. This is his kingdom. But how does he deal with his subjects? Verse 14. He raises up those who are bowed down. He doesn't overlook the meek. He doesn't overlook the lowly. He comes to the aid of those who are crushed and despised. Verse 15. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Everything that is provided for, God is the source of that provision. And God is the one who gives to the bird its food and to the animal in the field its food and to you and I its food. Everything you have ever eaten has been provided for you by God, whether you have thanked him for it or acknowledged it or not. To not do it is an act of blasphemy and unthankfulness and ungratitude. Everything, every breath you have ever breathed is a gift from God. Every heartbeat that you have ever experienced is a gift from God. He gives to that all of his creatures. Anything that is provided for any of his creatures is provided from the hand of God. And all of his creatures, consciously or unconsciously, must look to him to find their sustenance because he is the one that provides all of it, whether they recognize him for it or not. Now, does this mean that nobody ever starves? If God provides for all of his creatures and satisfies the desire of every living thing, does that mean nobody ever goes hungry? It doesn't mean that, does it? This is where I wish I had a whole sermon to develop this. But I would just do it in short, and this is it. Everything that is provided for gets their sustenance and their provision from God. And even those who do go hungry and do starve, God, for his own purposes, according to his sovereign allowance, allows that to happen. Sometimes he allows that to happen as an act of judgment upon a people or upon a nation or upon a region. Sometimes God allows that to happen so that people will look to him for their sustenance. Sometimes God allows that to happen because it's an act of judgment for people's sin. Even the person who starves to death, can anybody honestly say that God has dealt with them less than they deserve? Or God has dealt with them in a way that they deserve better? Has anybody ever deserved better than how God has actually treated them in their in this life? Nobody deserves better. What would we get if we all got what we deserved? Would we get anything? If God starved me to death tomorrow or took my life right now, he, I could still say that he has treated me better, far better than I deserve. He has treated every son of Adam, every descendant of this fallen race, he has treated better than that person deserves. And so it's true that the sustenance or the, the, the need of all God's creatures is met only by him. There is no meter of the need outside of God. God is the one who needs, meets the needs of all his creatures and provides everything for his creatures. That is his providential care for the subjects of his kingdom. Now look at his saving mercies, verses 17 through 21. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. God is to be praised because of his greatness, his goodness, his kingdom, his providence. And lastly, his saving mercies or his salvation. And that's what verses 17 to 21 describe. Now, it's possible that David, like he does in other psalms here, when he speaks of God saving or being near to those who call upon him, is describing temporal or earthly deliverances. 
Because you'll read Psalms where he speaks of being delivered from earthly enemies, from foreign armies, or for people who are seeking his life or trying to kill him. And it may be that that's what David is describing here, though I think that because of verse 20, David is describing both earthly deliverances and that David has in mind salvation. He has already spoken of his godly ones and how God meets the need of those, how his godly ones rejoice, how God keeps those who fear him in verse 20. And because of verse 20, look at verse 20, the Lord keeps all who love him and all the wicked he will destroy. I think in verse 20 what David is describing is the ultimate end of those who fear God and the ultimate end of the wicked. And he is looking at his ultimate end and he is saying, because I have called upon the name of the Lord in truth, God has saved me. He knew he was a righteous one. He knew that in spite of his sin... Even everything with Bathsheba, if this psalm was written after Bathsheba, every sin that David had committed, God was not going to account to his credit to his account. God was instead viewing him as a righteous man because he had been saved and he had been delivered and he called upon the name of the Lord in truth. So David here is describing not just temporal, earthly deliverances, but also the salvation that God brings. Verse 20 is a beautiful verse because it describes the end of the righteous and the end of the wicked. God keeps those, or he protects, he preserves those who are his, who fear him, who love him. But the wicked, he will what? He will destroy. Do you realize that that's an act of God's goodness? Do you realize that one of the things that God is going to do to show his goodness to you for all of eternity is he has marked out every wickedness and he has pledged that he will destroy it. That he will destroy the wicked and he will preserve and he will keep us away from the wicked and away from sin and away from the effects of wickedness for all of eternity. One of the ways that God guards those who, who fear Him and keeps them for eternity is to mark out all wickedness and to pledge to purge it and to destroy it. And since He is King, He has all authority and all right to purge His kingdom of wickedness. And I'm glad that He will someday. I'm glad that He will. I'm glad that He has marked all wickedness and He has pledged that justice will be done and the wicked He will destroy. And those who find their refuge in Him find that God will save them if they call upon him. He will not cast them out. He will not cast them away. He will not turn away any sinner who comes to him in truth and calls upon his name for salvation. That is an, an awesome offer of the righteousness and the grace of God. Any who call upon him, he will deliver and he will protect them and he will preserve them. But all who refuse to call upon him, he will destroy them in his righteous indignation as an expression of his greatness and his goodness. Now look how the psalm ends, verse 21. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. The psalm ends the same way it begins. You notice how it begins. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Verse 21, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. The psalm begins with a declaration of the praise to God's name going on forever and ever. And the psalm ends with this declaration of God's praise going on to His name forever and ever. And sandwiched in between those two declarations of eternal praise are these five things that make God worthy of all of that eternal praise. His greatness, His goodness, His kingdom, His providence, and His salvation. So what is the response of a believer to such a great God? You know what it is? It's to give ourselves to Him in obedience and love and worship. And I ask you this question, it's a rhetorical one. What type of a fool would know this about God and then live as if none of that mattered? What type of a fool can have God pledge that He will protect the righteous and destroy the wicked, that God is this great and this majestic, and then not offer to God a heart of 
a, a life that is filled with loving, obedience, adoration, sacrifice, praise, extolling him and his greatness, meditating upon his truth. Only a fool would do that. Because God is that great. And God is that good. His greatness, his goodness, his kingdom, his providence, and his salvation. Those are the things that make God worthy of all that we can offer to him. Now, that ought to just prepare our hearts, I think, to offer ourselves to God. And then if we choose to, to offer back to him. So this is the point in our Consecration Sunday where we take up our offering and give to the Lord. We're going to take a few moments to bow our heads and our hearts before the Lord and offer ourselves to him first. I would remind you, we give to the, we give to our God not to gain his favor. Remember this. We, we have his favor. As those who have been imputed the righteousness of Christ, we forever have God's favor. Nothing that we do in this life can sacrifice or alter God's eternal favor to those who are his. So we don't give because we're trying to get God's favor. That's not why we give. We give because we have been favored by God. We give out of how God has blessed us. To some a lot, to some a little. There's no percentage. No guilt. It really is just the offering of a, a heart that is consecrated to Him. We have been preparing for this and giving ourselves to this and praying toward this for several months. And so now we're going to do that before the Lord. And I would ask the ushers to come forward and then we will pray together. And uh, we'll pray together and then we'll take up our offering. Let's bow our heads. Lord, as your people, we truly confess that you are great beyond description. Your greatness is unsearchable. Your goodness and your majesty and your splendor and your ways are past finding out. You are infinite and, and holy and beyond and above all that we can even fathom. And even our most glorious conceptions of you are not worthy of who you truly are. And only eternity will reveal to us the greatness of your splendor and your grace and your kindness to us. We thank you that you have shown us such favor, that you have provided for us all that we need. We look to you as the giver of every good gift and know that whatever it is that we give to you is only a portion of what you have already given to us. We know that we take from your hand and we give to your hand and we say, who are we that we are able to have so much and to enjoy so much and to give so much? We thank you that you are worthy of our praise. We thank you that you have made us to know you. You have opened our eyes to truth and to your word and to your Son, and that you have brought us to yourself. And because of your greatness and out of the abundance of what you have given, we give back to you. We pray, O oh God, that you would take our gifts and use them and multiply them and be praised and honored through them. May your name be lifted high, and may our hearts reflect the attitude of people who have been overwhelmed by your greatness and your goodness. And may you fill our hearts today with wonder, love, and praise to you and all that you have done. May your works and your name be magnified and glorified and extolled forever, O our great God, in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, Thank you for listening.